Well, hello there. Welcome to episode 15 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. In this episode, Rachel Wall and Tony Layden join us to talk about a whole constellation of related phenomena, dialogue, conversation, deliberation, and so on, all of which are deeply involved with the formation and maintenance of the social writ large. What are the stakes, materially and experientially, of various forms of social encounter, and how do participants in such encounters feel about it? What practical habits or dispositions are conducive to productive involvements across various kinds of differences? Have certain interpreters, myself certainly included, been getting Rawls wrong this whole time? Please do enjoy this conversation with our supremely thoughtful guests. Welcome. It is really good to see both of you, and I am so excited to talk to you about discussion, deliberation, and particularly what that looks like in difficult in difficult conversations. So I'm going to ask you both to introduce yourselves. Um, Rachel, why don't you start us off? Sure. My name is Rachel Wall, and I am an associate professor at the University of Virginia School of Education and Human Development in the Social Foundations of Education program and the Department of Leadership Foundations and Policy. Thank you. And Tony? Hi, I'm uh, Tony Layden. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I'm also the associate director of the Center for Ethics and Education, which is based at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you so much. Excellent. So this is obviously a very timely topic for us to be talking about. Can you uh, tell us the story of how you basically became interested in this from a philosophical perspective. Tony, would you like to start and then we'll move to Rachel? Sure. Um, So I'm a philosopher who came late to philosophy of education. So in some sense, my story about how I got into this uh, picks up education rather late. But I've been generally interested in what I think of as the social, uh, I think, for my whole career. And for me, that means the kind of space between us that allows us to do things together and not merely side by side or in a coordinated fashion. So like, I'm just really fascinated by like what allows human beings to make up a we and to do things together. And like, what's the kind of structure of that intersubjective space that we create that allows us to do that. And so one of the things that we do together, and also one of the things that allows us to do other things together is that we reason together. Uh, that we talk to each other and we align our wills and we make projects together and so forth. And so I got interested in thinking about just the activity of reasoning together uh, as a way of thinking about acting together. Um, And I was working mostly in political philosophy. So that got me into thinking about democratic reasoning together, uh, what's called deliberative democracy, which is a model of democracy where the key ideas that we're citizens are talking together about how we should live together. Um, And in the course of thinking about that, then questions come up about, well, we don't all agree about everything. So what is it we're doing and how do we think about uh, how we uh, talk to each other across these differences? Um, And lately, I've gotten interested in that question more in the space of education. Like, what do we need to what skills do we need to do that? How do we foster that in classrooms and so forth? Um, Yeah, so that's the background, I guess, of my interest. Excellent. Thank you. Rachel? Sure. I came 
to this through a somewhat different path. I had written a book on the way police respond to human rights activism and education regarding police violence and found the ways in which both more antagonistic naming and shaming approaches of activism campaigns can have unintended consequences of creating an enormous amount of resentment and animosity on the part of police officers. So they tend to curb their behavior, but are in no way bought into the ideas of human rights. In fact, just the contrary. But on the other hand, human rights education, where police were enrolling in these uh, master's degree granting programs in human rights, tended to be a little bit too collaborative and conciliatory. You know, police were using them very instrumentally in order to um, advance their careers and not really challenged in the areas in which they really disagreed with the program. So when I finished that book and moved to Charlottesville to start my job at the University of Virginia, I was curious about other ways that communities were engaging with police. And it so happened that around that time, um, there began a series of public forums between police and community members. And I was curious about whether dialogue could offer a third way that is not as antagonistic, but also not as conciliatory as the other two methods that I had studied. So I began doing studies of dialogue between police and communities. And then when in August of 2017, there was the violent neo-Nazi Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which was traumatic on many levels, but the fallout from it in Charlottesville was in many ways not so much about divisions between you know, democratic citizens and self-proclaimed white supremacists, because that was a really pretty obvious division, but really between uh, people who all considered themselves to be liberals or on the left, who had different understandings of how to move forward um, and whether it was possible to move forward. And a lot of these conflicts revolved around whether and how we should talk to each other. So for example, in city council meetings that took place after the Unite the Right rally, there was deep, heated um, contestation about whether or not rules of deliberation should be followed, or whether or not there was a place in these meetings for the expression of rage, of anger um, at the city, at city officials. So this really made more personally urgent and pressing questions about what does it mean to talk to each other in a particular way? What is the harm in insisting people talk in a particular way and what is gained through it? Excellent. Thank you. It's fascinating. Thank you so much. So in inviting you guys to speak today, we use the phrase dialogue, deliberation, and talking across difference. And then today I talked about, I mentioned it as difficult conversations. Um, and I've been moving between those two different things, I think, as I've been thinking about your work. So I'm going to ask the next question kind of in framing with, with that um, element. So my question is speaking broadly, what have you found out about this issue through your research process What and what that looks like? But I want you to if you can begin by saying in those terms, which ones are you gravitating towards and what word would you choose to describe this work that you're doing? Um, and I think Derek, did you want to chime in too? Yeah, can I ask that in a slightly more uh, uh, directed uh, way? This is also, you know, coming out of my own sort of personal 
uh, interests. Can you talk a little bit specifically about the differences between or the differences that you see between terms like dialogue, deliberation, reasoning together, conversation, and the way that that sort of emerges in a sort of political theory conversation around between like a Davide Panagia type Ranciere coming together and a more sort of deliberative democracy approach. Yeah, that makes sense too. Thank you. Um, so who would like to take that one on first? <laughs> I'm happy to, uh, or, but Rachel. I'm... Go for it, Tony. <laughs> okay. So for me, I think that the, the, well, I'll say two things about what I found out. So the, the first one uh, is what led to my uh, book from about 10 years ago called Reasoning a Social Picture. And that is that I think there are two rather different activities that we often describe as reasoning. And that book was an attempt to sort of pull them apart in part because when I found myself talking about reasoning with uh, political philosophers, political theorists, um, I always felt like we were talking past each other, oddly enough. So the first activity of reasoning, which is the one that philosophers tend to think about, is uh, working out a series of thoughts towards a conclusion guided by certain norms of rationality. The other activity, uh, which is the one that really interested me and I think is the one that gets us into the space of dialogue and deliberation and, and difficult conversations, is the thing we do when we're talking to each other and neither of us is trying to manipulate the other or command the other or being blindly deferential to the other. And so I was interested in like, what's that activity? And the way I came around to think about it was that it's a species of conversation uh, and it has a particular set of features. One is that what we are doing in that conversation is that each person is inviting the others to take what they say as speaking for them as well. So the thought is I am opening up a space and I'm saying to the people I'm reasoning with, this is how I see things, whatever the subject is we're talking about. And um, do you see them that way as well? But it's an invitation, so it's open to you to say, no, you don't see it that way. And the other piece of this is that in that process, we are always open to being challenged or criticized about what we've said, both by our interlocutors and by somebody who might be watching. Um, so the aim of reasoning in that sense is not so much to reach a solution. It's not so much to persuade other people. It's not to find compromise. It's just to sort of work out where we stand vis-a-vis -vis each other. Then you can, sorry, you want to, I'll stop there. And if you've had a follow-up. So, well, okay. So I do have a follow-up then. If, if that was literally, really, for really a stopping point. I did. I'm just, I'm curious about, uh, so when you are, when, when you're pursuing this particular interest that uh, you have or the particular kind of reasoning that you're interested in, uh, what philosophers or thinkers are you pulling on when you – do you find yourself using or citing or find their thoughts – this is just me doing my own bibliographic work now. <laughs> uh, so for me, that's the way uh, John Rawls thought about public reason and reasoning together and democratic deliberation. Most other people don't think that. So that's a sort of uh, 
like part of what got me uh, to have to articulate this clearly both to myself and other people was I came out of a tradition where I thought that's what Rawls was saying. Um, and when I would use Rawls as my like source just to back this up or say that I was talking about that, very few people I was talking to heard me say what I thought I had said, because I would use these words like reason and they would have that first picture in mind and I would have the second picture in mind. But I hadn't like fully pulled those two things apart in my own thinking to be able to articulate that. I think another person who thinks this way uh, is Stanley Cavell, um, who is, <laughs> uh, Derek, just for those of you not watching the Zoom, uh, <laughs> made a celebratory remark, uh, movement with his hands. Um, so Cavell talks about in The Claim of Reason and elsewhere, this idea of kind of offering up as a sample uh, so he talks about uh, what's called ordinary language philosophy. So ordinary language philosophy is a form of philosophy whereby uh, we try and think about concepts by thinking about how words are actually used in ordinary speech. And there's this uh, sort of question that comes up is like, who's, on whose authority do, does the philosopher say, you know, when we say uh, think or when we say reason, we mean this, like who's the we there and what, you know, evidence do you have? And Cavell says, well, that's not the way to think of it. The way to think of it is that when I say, as a philosopher, uh, you know, we when we say reason, we mean this. What I mean is, when I say reason, I mean this, don't you? Um, so we offer a sample and we ask for confirmation. And the process of reasoning together is looking for community. It's looking for other people who agree with us, right? I'm aspiring to say something that we could say. And I'm hoping that you will join me and maybe you won't. Right. And maybe I've said the wrong thing. And there's that's that whole space is open. So just to like get us back to Kara's question about deliberation. So I think there are two ways to think about the difference between dialogue and deliberation uh, that are sort of tracked by those two pictures of reasoning, the calculative getting to a conclusion one and the social uh, interaction one. On the calculative one, like dialogue is just talking. It, it has no reasoning constraints on it. And deliberation is figuring out the answer, right? And so we go, we push into, like deliberation forces us to be rational for better or worse because we're trying to get an answer and we think that reason is the best way to get to the answer. On the social picture, what I call the social picture of reason is the picture of the activity of reasoning as working together and inviting each other to take our words as speaking for others. All of that is conversation, Um and I think there's sort of three kind of activities that are like get, you get us closer and closer to being reciprocally linked to one another by how we have to respond to each other. So there's conversation where I have to listen to what you're saying. You have to listen to what I'm saying. We have to take turns. We have to be responsive to each other in that way. But we're not trying to figure out where we stand. I don't I'm not necessarily making invitations. I think you in good faith would take up. Reasoning is a bit closer. We are speaking in this sort of invitational mode, I have to like, so in thinking about what I'm saying to you, I have to think that it is the kind of invitation you might take up. Like it's not a good move in that kind of reasoning to just say something and say, well, it was an invitation, you know. Um, and then deliberation is, it pushes us into a space I call engaged reasoning. And there are lots of ways to get there. But the thought is now we have to be even more responsive because there's something about the situation that calls for us to want to be on the same page, right? To want to find the words that we can both say. 
One reason to do that is we care about each other, right? If you're having a conversation with a really close friend, you don't want to just let it go when you say, oh, well, I guess we just disagree about this fundamentally. Like it matters to you what the other person thinks. But another way in which we get to that space is we're trying to come up with an, a solution. We're trying to come up with an agreement. It could be a compromise. It could be the, the right answer to the question, whatever. And so one way to think about deliberation is because it's guided by the aim to find an answer or a, a um, agreement, we have to be much more responsive to each other in this way. Um, and so that gets us into deliberation in a way that doesn't require us to like throw out rage, doesn't require us to throw out emotion, doesn't require us to be in this kind of coldly rational sense. It just requires us to be much more attuned to finding that common ground. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. Uh, Rachel, uh, same sort of question to you. How do you think about the differences between terms like deliberation, conversation, dialogue, and and so on? Sure. <clears throat> so as, as Tony said, deliberation is often about finding an answer. And the way I think about that in distinction from dialogue is that deliberation is really about the issue itself. There is a political problem. Sometimes it's preceding a specific decision like a vote, but there is a political problem that, that needs to be decided, an outcome, a dilemma that needs to be addressed. And so the conversation tends to be issue-based, even though as Tony's work has so beautifully laid out, what matters in it is how we respond to each other. The topic is the issue, whereas dialogue is a much more capacious term. There, it is often less structured, often less formal, and dialogue that brings people together across political divides is often, though not always, about not so much the issues themselves, but about understanding the other people in the room. And so I think it lends itself more explicitly to a social conception of reasoning, because often the aim is really understanding the people with whom you are trying to share a society. Um, so it it's a bit more of a, it's a form of talk that flags the interpersonal dimension of what talk is. Thank you. Thank you for that. Who do you, as uh, this is just, now I'm just going to pair this with Tony's question, who do you find yourself drawing on for these particular understandings of the way that dialogue, deliberation, et cetera, work? Sure. So when I think about my work, on one hand, there is a longstanding debate in political theory that matters to the way I navigate this, which is between thinking about our democracy as relying on deliberation. So deliberative theorists, you can think of, you know, classically people like Jürgen Habermas, and then more recently, people who have uh, attempted to think about the problems and more traditional ideas about deliberation and tried to address the way in which it can be exclusionary and reproduce systems of inequality and that are yet still working within a deliberative framework like Iris Marion Young and Daniel Allen. But essentially, the idea is that our democracy cannot rely only on methods of participation like voting in which the majority wins, but must rely on these kinds of consensual and reflective and deepening practices of deliberation. So there's there's that camp. <laughs> and then there's a kind of another camp, which has been uh, especially influential for some political theorists on the political left, like Chantal Mouffe and Lynn Sanders, who basically argue that conflict is at the center of human relations, particularly in a political society, and that efforts to work through conflict through talk 
inevitably obscure the real struggle over power and resources and status that are going on in any kind of political society. And that the best way to handle conflict is to try to channel it into explicit but nonviolent forms of competition, such as protests, boycotts, other forms of confrontation, um, rather than this obfuscation that deliberation and dialogue, according to some theorists, ends up creating. So I, I find myself situated in that debate, but the philosopher who means the most to me in terms of the philosopher who has been most helpful in thinking about my work, other than Tony Layden, who honestly has been quite influential for, for the way I understand my work, is Charles Taylor. And, and Charles Taylor thinks a lot about um, humans as inherently dialogical, that we can only understand ourselves and the world through uh, interaction, either with books or poems or paintings, and also crucially other people, and has um, thinks about reasoning as a way in which other people might invite us to understand their position as better aligned with our intuitions. So rather than imagining that we're being uh, abstractly argued out of one position and into another, rather we're being invited to understand our intuitions as differently expressed. Uh, so Taylor has been important to the way I think about my own work. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. I was for some reason thinking about Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre while I was dropping my daughter off at daycare today. Somebody oh, had this. Oh, me too. Yeah, obviously. No, it was, <laughs> yeah. there was some quote quotation from a political theorist whose name is escaping me right now, but I will find it by the end of this episode, who said something about the two of them having had the advantage of going from basically socialism to Catholicism without having to pass through liberalism first, which I was like, oh, that's a, that's an interesting way to think about those takes on sociality. Anyway. Interesting. So, yeah. so I want to first highlight one thing of, of what you both have said, and then I'm going to move you to a new question. Um, I am struck in your account, Tony, about the role of emotions, which doesn't always come in, at least in you know the stereotypical view around deliberation, the role of the emotions and also the role of relationships and investment in relationships um, in the way that you're describing it. And I hear that in your work too, Rachel. And then I also hear that in your kind of call out to Tony on this call and, and the relationship um, that you have with his work. And I just, I just want to name that because I think that we often think about our relationship with other thinkers as really abstract and that sometimes they are, or they, we, they come through books, but that they're also personal. So thank you for that. Um, I am going to ask you both to speak a little bit to why philosophy and why education, you bring those two fields together and, why do they matter together in relation to these topics that you're pursuing? You want to start, Rachel? Sure. Um, I think what philosophy brings to education is the capacity to, one, ask not only what works, but what works for what purposes. So to ask what is good, what is desirable, how should we live, how should we inhabit this space called schooling and outside of schooling, so it allows us to step back from pressing questions of practical functioning to ask questions of what this is all for. <laughs> and then second, it allows us to think more capaciously about what 
is going on here. So often in schools of education, there's an imperative to try to solve immediate problems, which are obviously very important, but then it can often push out questions about what is the underlying, what are the underlying stakes of this debate? What are the philosophical intuitions that are driving people to disagree so keenly on this issue? So philosophy brings to education the ability to ask questions of meaning and purpose. And in my own work, it allows me to do that about dialogue. So, you know, I'm not primarily trying to figure out how to have better dialogues, because a lot of people are doing that very well. I'm primarily trying to figure out what meaning these conversations hold for people and for democracy. Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, Tony? Yeah, so I, um, as I said, I came to philosophy of education later in my career. And uh, one thing that it forced me to do is actually think about what I was bringing to the table as a philosopher who didn't know that much about education when talking to people who knew a lot more about schools and education. Um, and the answer I came up with is that uh, philosophy, at least the way I practice it, is an exercise in what I call conceptual optometry. So the image I have in mind is, you know, when you go to the eye doctor and they're checking your prescription uh, and they put this thing in front of your face, it's called a foropter. And the optometrist is like changing the lenses that you're looking at the eye chart through uh, and asking you, you know, is number one better than number two? Is number one, you know, is this clearer than that? And I think a philosophy is doing that. That is, we play with concepts and we think about the different ways concepts might be understood. And then we offer those to people who are thinking about the world and know things about the world uh, and say, look, if you think about this under this lens, it looks this way. And if you think about it under this lens, it's going to look a little different. You're going to notice different features. Uh, other things are going to be obscured. And which of those is really the, the way you want to be thinking about this problem that you're interested in? And so, for instance, these two conceptions of reasoning I mentioned earlier, I think of as kind of lenses. It's not that one is the right way to think about reasoning. It's rather that uh, there are different ways of thinking about what we're doing when we're interacting with one another. And being attuned to which one we're, we think we're doing changes what we care about, what when we think we're doing it well, what skills we need, and so forth. Um, so then thinking about deliberation and these questions about reasoning in education, I mean, it, first of all, it's where we learn to do all these things. Uh, and there's a lot of people talking to each other in schools. And so if what we're trying to do is this kind of social engaged uh, activity with one another, then you can think about, well, what kinds of particular skills are needed to do that? Um, things like intellectual humility, openness, the ability to listen to another, the kind of translational skills that requires that are required if I'm going to understand you coming from some different kind of cultural or conceptual framework and understanding what you're saying and sort of put it into my language and put my language back into yours. Um, so we can sort of work out these skills we need. And then um, it gives us a way of seeing that activity under a certain light. And that changes then how we're going to structure it and what we're going to try and get out of it. And uh, that can help, I think, teachers in classrooms, administrators, policymakers think about, well, what are the structures we need in place? Thank you. I think it speaks to both of you as thinkers that 
after each one of your responses to our questions, I could have asked the next question. It would have been a nice segue. Um, and the next question is, goes exactly to that space. So, you know, you leave the eye doctor and what do you do? Um, what, what do you, what have you found with your research that you think would help inform policy and practice? And another way of putting it is, what have you seen in your research that is working well in policy and practice? So, um, Tony, you want to start there and then we'll go to Rachel. Sure. Uh, I'm going to try to give two answers to this question. Uh, one based on the research that I mentioned before and one on the stuff that I'm currently thinking about. So I think that, uh, one way we can think about the creating the skills uh, to do this kind of social reasoning with one another that uh, matters is like, I think we need to get away from the debate model of thinking about difficult social issues, whether in the classroom or in policy and get more to the working together to figure things out model. So like one thing I've tried to do in classes where I'm taking up controversial issues with my students um, is to like put them in the framing of when they're in a math class. So if you think about a good math class where there's like collaborative working together going on, the students are listening to each other. They're trying to figure out the best way to think about a problem. Um, they don't have the answer yet. Uh, they, but they're like not debating in the sense that they're not articulating positions that are opposed to one another and just butting heads, right? They're in the mode of trying to figure out what works best, how they can work through the problem. And so if you put, I find if you put students into that space, even when you're talking about controversial social issues, you give them a problem to solve that requires them to think through the issues that are at stake and that they disagree about. It gets them into a framework to listen to each other much more. And to not, it, it makes it less fraught, right? It's less like, am I going to win? Am I going to lose? What's my position? Who are, who's on my team? And more, where are the good ideas? And how can we think about them? And what am I missing? And what are you bringing to the table? And so forth. So that's one way in which I think thinking about deliberation in this kind of social sense can shift this conversation because we can shift towards the, we're looking for an answer part. But because we've conceived of it as this kind of social interactive thing, uh, we don't open up the space for the like the one intellectual bully to say, well, I know the answer. You guys all be quiet and I'll figure it out. Um, the place where I like my most recent work has been around uh, the role of trust in knowledge. So one way to think about a m large amount of the stuff we know or think we know and the way we think is that that's also socially embedded. So we each rely on certain sources of information that we trust. And what it means to trust them is that we sort of let them have direct access to our thinking so that we can think about other things, right? Like I take in information from the New York Times, let's say, or from other sources that I regard as reliable. Uh, and, you know, I take the references in journal articles to be accurate and reliable and I don't go check them all out and, and so forth. And that allows me to think about other things. I don't have to think about the 
information. I can use the information to think about other things. But to do that, I have to trust that information. So each of us has a kind of background context of trust that allows us to think about things. And it's what happens is that people have different background contexts of trust. And because they're in the background, we don't notice them as much. And so we don't, like one way in which I think people fail to talk to each other and people don't understand each other is because we have different senses of what the trustworthy sources of information are. And we have different senses of what determines whether a source is trustworthy. And so because we haven't, like, we don't bring that to the foreground, it's really hard to, like, bring that up and talk about it. And so we end up just talking past each other. And we we describe this as, you know, oh, I have the facts and you have alternative facts. But I think the charitable way to think about that is, I trust these sources and you trust those sources. And I trust these sources because they have a certain kind of form. Maybe I trust them because they have a kind of scientific methodology in place. You trust these sources because they're locally embedded and situated and have like understand the issue in that particular context in a deep way. And that's what matters to you. This other person trusts those sources because they have shown themselves to be morally upstanding. Um, maybe because they have a kind of religious backing. And so part of then what has to happen when we think about those spaces is both to think about as educators, which trust space are we educating people into? And how do we think about how that changes their ability to talk to other people? Thank you. A practical example that I just want to pull in, and then I'll turn this over to Rachel. I was really pushed to think in a presentation that was done through some of your colleagues at the Center for Ethics and Education on case studies. And they presented a case study, and then they talked about how students in college classes had responded to the case study. And one of the things that came out, which totally resonated with me because I teach undergrads, was that where the professor perhaps thought that they were having a deliberative discussion about some particular topic, the students were kind of having that conversation, but there was all this social dynamics happening. So essentially a student brought another student into the conversation and it was a violation of social trust, I think. They they kind of called out somebody in a way that would be embarrassing. And that was really, to me, I think that's sort of one of the ways you might be going is that there was this viol- that the, the nuances of what trust looks like in that em- environment were really playing into the capacity to have a conversation. Does that seem like it kind of fits with what you're, what you're describing? Yeah, so I think in both ways. That is, I think those, the case studies, these are the kind of uh, normative case studies that Mira Levinson has been developing uh, at Justice in Schools are great devices for having these kind of deliberative conversations where students have to figure stuff out, right? It, it gets you into that space where we're not just throwing uh, positions at each other. Um, but yeah, it's also true that we, like, one of the ways in which I think we often break down the ability to talk to each other, like, let me back up and say, I find whenever I'm talking to academic audiences about uh, reasoning, and conversation and things, inevitably, the first question that I get asked is, has, it's not asked this way, but what it means is, what, under what principles can I exclude people from that process? Right? The question is always, can't I, can't we not talk to those people? It's different who those people are in each case, but that's always inevitably the thing people worry about. And I think one of the reasons that we do that 
that I'm starting to sort of see more clearly is what we're trying to get rid of is the people who trust things we don't trust and who don't trust the things we trust. And if you see it that way, then it becomes much like, then there's a thing to work out. It's not just like, oh, well, those are the wrong people. They don't believe in science or they don't, uh, you know, they're not an ally or they're not understanding this particular moral principle. Um, right. There's stuff to talk about if we can say, well, this is why this is, this background context of trust yields some insight. And this is why this background of trust yields some insight. And this is why this one is blind to things. And this is why this one's blind to things. And so like for me, it's always the case of you should never look for principles to rule somebody out of the conversation. That's, that's a bad first move. It's a bad set. You know, it's a bad second, third and fourth move too. I don't know if that answered your question yeah, I think that that definitely gives a lot to think with. So thank you. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about how your research has, what you have seen from your research in terms of how we conduct these conversations and what, what policy should look like, looks like when it works? Sure. I would love to talk about my research and what I found out. But before I do, I just want to say that I think that what Tony is saying about trust and this whole discourse about misinformation is crucial and undersaid. The way in which I think particularly those of us in the academy think that we can, from a neutral position, pinpoint some people as simply misguided based on their sources and others as obviously rational based on their sources obscures the extent to which all of our sources and our relation to them is based on, Tony uses the word trust, but I would even go a little bit further and use the word faith. We have grown into, been formed by particular forms of faith in different kinds of institutions based in many ways on our experiences with those institutions. Have I experienced dominant social, cultural, and scientific organizations as including me and enfranchising me? Or have I personally and generationally experienced them as untrustworthy, you know, as willing to screw me over? (laughs) And I think that often what we believe is epistemological and cognitive is actually about direct experience and the way in which somebody's distrust of mainstream institutions reflects an experience of disenfranchisement and disempowerment in a society that can't be solved by lecturing them about, you know, who has expertise and is really about inequality in our democracy and and how people are treated by institutions. And so I, I think that the whole discourse around misinformation really misses that. Um, so I am thrilled that Tony is writing this book on trust from that perspective. Um, so in my work, the research that I've done that relates most closely to schools is the research on university students. So for the last couple of years, since 2017, I've been observing political dialogues in, on college campuses. So forums that bring together college students who disagree politically. And then I interview the students afterward And then for the 2017 dialogues, I also interviewed those students again three years later. And what I found is that, first of all, students are intuitively 
Tony Leda. So intuitively, what they walk away with in their evaluative judgment of the person they spoke with is based almost entirely on the extent to which they thought the other person was responsive to them. So what this means is that people walk away not thinking about the rigor of the person's argument, not thinking about whether they had presented an airtight case for abortion or whatever it is, but thinking about whether they felt that the person was receptive and responsive in conversation, that this is intuitively the way they respond to these encounters. Um, in terms of the meaning of the conversations for, you know, people always want to know about change. Did anything change? And I don't think that change is really the point, as Tony was saying, to try to understand where we stand in relationship to each other. But what did change is almost ubiquitously, students walked away with very different ideas about the other person, with very different ideas about this person who voted for the other candidate. And this often was accompanied by different forms of legitimation. So most basically, personalization, coming to see this as you know an individual rather than an abstract Trump voter or abstract Clinton voter, because these were, you know, early 2017, 2018, 2019. Um, and a little bit more demanding than that, there was the recognition of moral motivation. So understanding that the other person was motivated by a source that you can see is a form of the good, even though it's one that you do not base your own decisions on. And often this can come with a fair amount of disrespect. Like, yeah, that guy wasn't very smart, but he was a good person. And then the third and most demanding form of legitimation of another person is recognition of moral or ethical validity. So seeing that they're motivated by a form of the good and also seeing that it's valid. Um, you know, Tony, you had said something like that also applies to me, that speaks to me, right? And this was really the most demanding form to understand this as they're motivated by a form of the good that I might consider taking up that has validity to it. And that these three forms of recognition were ways that people came to see another person as legitimate co-creators of democratic society, right? Now, in the dialogues I observed, they were very much dialogue in the broader sense rather than deliberation over a specific problem. So perhaps not surprisingly, nobody was persuaded to change their view on a political issue. People didn't walk away with a new, different view of, you know, abortion. I keep using that because it's on all of our minds. So, um, but they did walk away again with a different view of the people on the other sides of those issues. Um when I followed up three years later and uh, asked students things like, have you thought about the dialogue since it happened? Has it held any meaning for you? Has it had any effect on what you do or what you think? The um, legitimation of other people remained the most distinct outcome. They remember, yeah, I sat with that guy and he was really pro-life and I thought about him during the Supreme Court hearings. What did you think about him? remember he was a decent guy. He was really respectful. He listened. He asked good questions. So really remembering the ethics of the encounter, the social dimension of reason as what stuck out, what mattered to them, and what ended up shifting their view of the people on the other side of the issue. Um, I will say that all stu most students were uncomfortable with this 
felt a great deal of uh, unsettling. There was an unsettling effect of this. They were really uncomfortable with this outcome, but for different reasons on the political left and the political right. The students on the political right, especially the conservative Christian students, worried that by focusing on the ethics of the encounter, by focusing on the ethics of responsiveness, basically this person treated me well when we talked, that they were failing to dig into the deepest sources of disagreement and therefore failing as ethical agents, failing to really be pushed to to love a person unconditionally, a very Christian approach to the ethics of dialogue. Whereas students on the left, you know, particularly sec- secular, liberal, and leftist students, worried that they were failing as political agents. So Taylor talks about the, the modern moral order as being premised in the idea of the person as one having agency, so the ability to affect one's life and even the world around you. And two, this agency is most appropriately expressed through politics. So you have the ability to change the world through politics, and therefore you have the responsibility to do so. And this was really present and alive and actually burdensome for these students because they worried that in having this intuitive response to another person as premised in the ethics of the encounter, really experiencing as what Tony would call the social dimension of reason, they were failing as political agents, failing to prioritize justice, failing to prioritize the outcomes of these people's actions and views in the world outside the conversation. So there's a great deal of unsettling. And this was especially painful for students who were structurally vulnerable. So students whose rights were under threat from specific policy proposals of the other side. So for example, a student who had recently immigrated from a Muslim-majority country This was after Trump had proposed a Muslim ban. It was so obvious to her that she could not actually separate the ethics of the encounter from the effects of their political views, because the effects of their political views meant that she shouldn't be in the room at all. You know, it, it was the abstract politics that these students walked in with was a failure to recognize her personhood, she felt. And so for her, there was a particular... Um, suffering involved in trying to make these two distinct, to respond socially and receptively when outside of the dialogue, the ethics of their views were such. And this was true for many students who were structurally vulnerable. So I can I can pause there or I can talk about implications for practice, whatever is is better. Well, that is actually, <clears throat> that's how we sort of get into the uh, the questions for practice. One of the things that I find, first of all, all of that is really fascinating, everything that both of you have said. And there's so much in there that I would love to dig into. But one of the things that I'm hearing, oddly, so like in this on this podcast, we ask these questions in this order. We're like, let's think like, what should policymakers be thinking about in this large abstract general terms? And then what should people like actually in the classroom think about? And one of the interesting things about the policy question is that it came immediately down to sort of the the ethics of the encounter, this sort of like to this sort of ground level. So the the question that I'm the question that I am, you know, assigned to ask right now is basically to go deeper in that uh, direction. And specifically, I'd love to start with uh, Rachel here. I mean, I have I have two questions, one of which is about what the role 
how we should understand the role of something like personal ethical commitment and personal personal ethical transformation as involved in these sort of like person-to-person encounters that we might experience in uh, a classroom writ large. So like the things that can't be affected by policy that policy might enable or something like that. But like, how should we think of that on a personal basis? That's one. And two, concretely, thinking about your research, Rachel, how did you see the, the kind of ethics of encounter at work on almost like a meta level as you were conducting these conversations and doing sort of the data gathering, if you want to call it that, with uh, your participants. Uh, Kara, do you have a, please ask that question in a slightly better way. Not better, but I, one other way that I'm going to ask you, Rachel, is in teaching, in K-12 teaching, we think a ton about methods and in teacher education research, um, if you're working in methods, you, you're asked to write a method section whenever you write a paper to really think about the methods of how you conducted your research. In philosophy of education, that doesn't always happen. And in fact, I've been asked to remove those sections from my philosophy of education publications. But I know for a fact that the methodology that Derek is alluding to of how you conducted these interviews was really carefully done and precise. And so in your answer to what should teachers do, what should we be doing on the field, I'd like you to first tell us a little bit about how did you have these conversations? How did you structure them? Sure. So first I should say, I did not conduct any of the dialogues. I'm not in the field of facilitating dialogues myself. Mm -hmm. I'm only the researcher. Mm -hmm. So these were dialogues that were being facilitated in various places on college campuses, mainly in the Northeast that I traveled to and I observed. Um, In terms of how I conducted the interviews, uh, so I interviewed um, a little over 50 students and first in the few weeks after the event, and then I was able to catch up with just over 20, three years later, And I practice something called in-depth semi-structured interviews, which means that you start out with a list of questions, much like this podcast, but then you expect that you will not stick to it, but go deeper and follow the path of the conversation. Um, And I began by asking people to tell me a little bit about themselves and their background, why they came to the dialogue wanting to understand how they imagined or hoped what they wanted to get from it. I then asked them to just tell me uh, a little bit about what happened. So I always try to give as little in the question as possible to open the path for people to speak from where they are, to feed them as little as possible. So I say things like, tell me about the event. What happened? even though I was there, because I want to see how they experienced it in their perspective. And then I spend a lot of time saying, could you give me an example of that? Can you tell me more? Can you give me an example of that? Can you tell me more? Um, And then once I've exhausted that, um, to try to get their narration of what happened and their interpretation of why it happened, what the stakes were, how they felt about it, how they thought about it, I asked questions like, could you tell me a little bit of what surprised you the most? What was most meaningful? What was least meaningful? What was most challenging? What was hard? Would you do it again? Why? And then when I did my follow-up interviews in 2020, I asked a lot of preliminary questions like, 
Um, what issues have been on your mind recently? Um, how has the pandemic been for you? Um, what, how have you been thinking about the election? So really trying to get a sense of what they're swimming in, what has mattered to them. Um, and then I ask, have you thought about the dialogue event over the years? What made you think of it? What brought it to your mind? Did it mean anything to you when you thought of it? Did it change anything you felt or did? Um, and then I ask more broad questions like, um, do you think that that conversation, you know, what do you remember? What else do you remember? What else do you remember? Has that had any significance for you? Um, and then more overall questions like, has do you think that event has mattered to you in, in any way? If so, how? So those are the kinds of questions that I ask. Thanks. Uh Tony, just to rephrase this, uh, the question um, with an eye towards uh, your work in general, let me try to let me try to ask this again. I was asking about like how we should think about the ethics of the encounter and the role of whatever personal ethical transformation. Let me ask more specifically in sort of an educational context, how somebody like a teacher, an educational professional, ought to handle the issue of being the authority and speaking representatively, you know, to someone else in this sort of uh, dialogue while also remaining responsive? Like what kind of openness or set of dispositions or qualities are, are involved there? And how how should we think about managing those? Um, so again, I think it's helpful to think about what you're trying to do. I always find this is, again, where I think philosophy is helpful in just it's easier to do things if you have a clear sense of what it is you are doing. Uh, and so if you then think if what I'm trying to do as a teacher is to foster a space where my students can both engage in and learn how to engage in this kind of socially responsive interactive stuff, like what do I need to do? And I think, I'll just highlight two kinds of things. So one is how am I building up the skills? And there's a skill that uh, some of the stuff Rachel said made me think of that I think is really important. And I think we lose sight of, which I think of as charitable thinking. So philosophers like to talk a lot about charitable thinking, where that means something like understanding an argument as an argument. The way I think of it is understanding someone's argument as the argument of a smart, thoughtful person who is, who has, put a lot of time into thinking about what they're thinking about, right? So when you read a philosophical text, one of the things you always have to teach students how to do is not to dismiss it, to like understand why, even if you think that Descartes' ideas were nuts, like a really smart person who thought a lot about it, a lot more than you did, came to that conclusion. What's going on there? And so I think that's a skill philosophy teaches. It's, I think, not sold in the way critical thinking is, which is a shame, um, and I was like listening to Rachel talk about her students' uh, unease about what they had done. I suspect one of them was if you've been trained to think that like being a good thinker is being a critical thinker and you have gone into an encounter with another student who disagrees with you and you haven't convinced them and they haven't convinced you, something's gone wrong, right? Whereas if you go in thinking like, the real virtue is charitable thinking. And you come out thinking, I understand now why people think that, whatever that is. Like, you should be really happy. I mean, I, I like when I come up with a way of understanding somebody who disagrees with me and I get what they're at, like what they're 
what's motivating them, what's talking about them. And those are genuine things. It's not like, oh, they're motivated by, you know, greed or or a, a will to power or something. So, you know, they have these real values. I see what those values are. They may not be my values. They may not have my outlook, but I can now see why a smart, thoughtful person got there. So, like we teach charitable thinking, we express that as a virtue. And then the other thing is, like having those dialogues, and this gets, I think, more direct to your point about authority, they're kind of material and social conditions that allow us to be responsive to each other. And so as a teacher, one of your jobs is to do what you can to create a space in your classroom that has those conditions, even given the fact that the world is such that those conditions don't exist. Um, I've been thinking a lot also about the idea of safety. Um, I think we've got a really bad way of thinking about what a safe space is, such that it's uh, a space where people have not, like, aren't challenged, right? Where they're safe. They're secure in the sense they're not made vulnerable, right? That's the that's the picture I think we have. I think that's the wrong picture. I think of safety as very different than security. Safety is the condition under which you can be vulnerable, right? And so what it means to create a safe space in a classroom is to make a space where people can be challenged and they're supported in that. So like being challenged hurts. It can be difficult. It can be um, uncomfortable. It can be worse than uncomfortable. And so... One of your jobs as a teacher is to be there to hold up and support and take care of the person who, because they've allowed themselves to be vulnerable, has been hurt. Um, it requires teaching your students how not to hurt, you know, to do what they can not to hurt each other while uh, being open to each other and being honest and critical and so forth. So one thing one can do as a teacher in that authority space is, is to create those spaces. And the last thing I'll say is, and this is sort of the thing I've come to in this work on trust, like, I think many people, certainly in academia, but I think also teachers, people with a, with kind of this, what you might think of as epistemic authority, people who have roles in society that make them like experts as knowledge holders and knowledge transmitters, think of the shape of the trust network they're creating for their students. That is the grounds on which you should find certain information sources trustworthy. Um in a sort of narrow way, they think of like there are these basic methods of of knowledge creation, roughly scientific methods, but much more broadly. So the methods you find in the humanities as well. Um, and those are the reliable ones. And we're trying to teach students how to do that. And if they don't know how to do that, then they're wrong and we're right. And it's my job as an authority figure to push them into the right, into the right way of thinking. I think that's, that's like a disaster in all kinds of ways. Um, I think a better model of what we should be we should be inculcating in our students and modeling for them is what I think of as uh, ideology of sort of non-dogmatism or open-mindedness. So the thought is, what makes a trust uh, source of information trustworthy and reliable is that it is always remains open to challenge. And so if that's my measure for what makes things reliable sources of information, then I also have to be open to challenge to be a reliable source of information. And so in the context where I'm discussing something with a student and trying to sort of bring them into that space, part of what I have to do is be open to challenge and make it like obvious to them that I am open to challenge because obviously the authority space makes them assume that that's not the case. Right. So I have to actually say many, many times it, you know, tell me where I'm wrong. Right. This is my way of thinking of it, but I'm not sure. Um, I may have missed something. It's okay for you to say you're wrong. Uh, 
because if they don't, if I don't say that, they don't believe it, right? Because the authority structure is such that they shouldn't think that, right? Yes, thank you very much. That's a wonderful answer. I want to thank you both so much for, there have been so many times where I've just been pushed to rethink things and really think more deeply um, throughout this conversation. And I just keep thinking, how amazing would it be if you both were moderating presidential election debates <laughs> and and if the ends were, <laughs> were having us come and think through ideas um, instead of the sort of domination that often um, it seems to be the goal or I think is the goal of those uh, forums. Thank you again very, very much and um, so excited for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. And I'm um, saying it's good that there are things like this, podcasts like this, where we can actually have those kinds of conversations and don't have to worry about debating each other. So thank you. And that is our show. Many thanks to Tony and Rachel for taking the time to share their thinking and their work with us. For you, our listeners, please do subscribe to our show wherever you listen. Leaving us a rating and a review helps others to find us as well. Send us feedback by email at thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. And as always, use the form linked in the episode description to suggest future episode topics and guests. One final piece of housekeeping. With the spring semester now at an end, we're going to slow down our podcast output over the summer such that it's easier for both you and us to keep up. So episodes will now be coming out every two weeks rather than every Friday. In our next episode, Cecilia Traw and Kevin Gary join us to talk about attention and its opposites. And that episode will be available on May 26th, not next Friday, but the Friday after. Until then, and for Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We'll see you next time.